This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacklariatis, the host of the channel. For today's show, we are pleased to have Dr. Herb Lin. Dr. Lin is Senior Research Scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Lin has extensive experience in or around the U.S. government. He is the Chief Scientist Emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board within the National Research Council of the National Academies. Prior to that, he served on President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. Dr. Lin is here with us today to talk about his new book, Cyber Threats and Nuclear Weapons. Dr. Lin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start simple. What is the book about and why did you choose to write it now? Well, the book is about uh, the one aspect of the U.S. nuclear enterprise, which I'll define in a minute, um, uh, and the fact that uh, every aspect of it uh, is deeply uh, intertwined with the correct and proper operation of uh, computers and information technology. Um, And this dependence uh, on computers creates... uh, a whole bunch of risks, some of them that the Department of Defense understands, and I think others which the Department of Defense does not understand very well. Uh, I wanted to do this book, and and I pushed uh, a a, a shorter timeline for the book, uh, because the Biden administration is at present uh, doing what every new administration does, undertaking a review of uh, U.S. uh, philosophy, if you will, on uh, how it should uh, obtain, um, configure, operate, etc., its nuclear weapons. And I wanted the book to come out in time uh, to perhaps have some influence on that review. Now, before we discuss the current or future cyber threats, I want to talk about the affirmative missions that the U.S. nuclear enterprise needs to meet and how computers, networks, and big data support that. Can you sketch the nuclear mission set for us? And and now might actually be a good time, too, to talk about uh, what you mean when you say U.S. nuclear enterprise. Okay. So the U.S. nuclear enterprise, uh, I mean, it's, it's a clumsy term, and I don't, put, I don't particularly like it. Um, but uh, I needed a word uh, to stand for every part of the U.S. government apparatus that has anything to do with nuclear weapons. Um, so it, this, this ranges from the nuclear weapons themselves, the things that actually go boom, um, 
to the uh, uh, it also includes the um, the systems that we use to deliver nuclear weapons uh, from U.S. soil to a target. Um, it has to do with the systems that we plan that we use to plan the missions, uh, plan what we're going to do. It has to do with the um, uh, the array of systems that are used to order these nuclear systems into operation that what you typically call command and control. Uh, it also has to do with the early warning systems, the, the systems that we have in place to determine uh, uh, if and when an attack and a nuclear attack is coming in on the United States uh, or its allies and to providing some kind of uh, understanding of the scope and nature of that attack. Uh, and it also uh, addresses to some extent the, uh, the, um, uh, the command and control arrangements at the top, that is who's authorized to, to use nuclear weapons and under what circumstances and so on. Uh, and, and so all of those, those, all those issues are folded into the uh, report. It is primarily a report about U.S. about the U.S. nuclear enterprise, um, as opposed to the Russian nuclear enterprise or the Indian nuclear enterprise. Uh, but there may be lessons in that uh, for that. Nevertheless, that's not a primary focus of the book. So you offer uh, a series of observations and then a number of policy imperatives that flow from those observations. Can you summarize kind of your major findings from your research and what the implications are for policymakers, decision makers, et cetera? Sure. Uh, I, I think that the one of the major implications of, of, of this, uh, one of the major findings in, in, in this observation is, is that the, the nuclear issue uh, sorry, that the, the the cyber issue goes way, 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 way beyond command and nuclear command and control. Uh, I emphasize that because people who have looked at cyber, quote cyber, unquote, uh, have have uh, and and nuclear have mostly focused on the command and control side of the house, which is the most natural place for it to be. Now. I, of course, spend a fair amount of time in, in, in the book on nuclear command and, and control, and that, that to me is, a, you know, it, it is the most obvious and reasonably the most central part of where computers in, interact with nuclear command and control, but it's not the only place. And I think the, the, that, that point, uh, the, the, the fact uh, that that's the only uh, uh, that's not the only place is is often lost. So, for example, you 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 need to have you, computers are a part of the nuclear delivery systems of the airplanes and the submarines and the missiles and so on. Uh, that's a big deal. And, and uh, if you ignore that, uh, if you don't pay attention to that, then you're missing an essential part of the the problem. And 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 so the the point is that the the vulnerabilities uh, uh, to adversary hacking uh, is not just on the nuclear command and control. So that's a, you know, that, 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 that's an important point. Um, the, the second point uh, is that as we are moving forward uh, in the, uh, in, in our uh, nuclear modernization program, which there's a, something that, that, that's, you know, we're, we're paying, we're in, going to spend um, hundreds of billions of dollars on, on nuclear modernization and if, if, if according to current plans, if everything uh, goes uh, the way they say it will. Um, and so we're, we're not only buying new hardware, we're figuring out new ways of using it, using the hardware, ways that we haven't used before. And a big deal 
in the way in which we have been uh, in which we're planning to use them in in, in the future uh, is the, to link integrate uh, conventional and nuclear functions. Uh, the, 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 in the jargon, it's called conventional nuclear integration, the integration of conventional and nuclear operations, uh, which means that uh, we're going to be um, uh, deploying systems that have both conventional and nuclear functions. And my claim in the book, and I think I can defend it well, uh, is that this increases the risk of uh, inadvertent nuclear escalation, um, which to me is a terrifying thing. Um uh, it's bad enough to think that we might deliberately go to nuclear war. That is actually stated U.S. policy, uh, that we would reserve the right to use nuclear weapons under certain extreme circumstances, even if the other guy hasn't yet used them. That, as I say, that is stated U.S. US that stated U.S. policy. That's bad enough, okay? But nobody on our side and nobody on their side, uh, whoever the there is, the they is, um, wants to go to nuclear you know, wants to go to nuclear conflict inadvertently or accidentally, that is, as a result of misunderstanding or some random accident. And yet we are going to be configuring our systems in a way that raises that risk. Uh, so that's the, 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 the second uh, major ob- ob- observation. Um, the third uh, is uh, that something that everybody knows, um, and, and, and uh, is this is not a new insight, but it's included here for completeness, because it really is an important point, uh, that, that short timelines for decision-making increases cyber risk, just like it increases other kinds of, uh, of misjudgments and, and, and so on. Why does it involve, why does it involve it raise cyber risk? Well, if you've ever tried to figure out, if you've ever been in the situation where you have to get your slides working um, in the next minute and a half because you have a presentation to do uh, and some for some reason your slides aren't displaying and you're just looking at the at the computer system and saying what the hell is going on with this guy um, and you're trying this that and the other thing you know frantically and so on to try to get your system up before the you know before the camera comes on I mean you understand what it means short timelines, Compress the, you know, the, the, a short timeline doesn't give you time to figure out what's going on, okay? And it means that you can't fix a problem. And we all we all know in that in various ways computers are can fail, uh, and you have to figure out what's going on. Um, just yesterday, I was in a conference uh, with people at the Department of Defense, and we. This was the part of the. This was a part of the Department of Defense that was dealing, you know, with with, with cyber, some cyber and, and, and nuclear issues. We couldn't get video on their side. Okay, and it was it, it eventually in time for for the meeting to start. And in fact, we never got video working. Now there's some fix for it somewhere. Somebody needs to, you know, so, so, we weren't under attack, but it's that somebody, somewhere there was a switch that somebody hadn't, you know, hadn't clicked on or something like that, but nobody knew what it was. It took a lot of time to figure out what was going on. And it, it would have taken, and we didn't have time. So we just said to hell with it. Okay. So that kind of thing is, you know, happens all the time. Uh, and so if you have shorter, t- if you design your systems so that you're, you're, you've configured your nuclear systems so that they, they require a short timeline uh, to decide, 
you're going to increase cyber risk. Okay. Um, the next one is that, you know, this is, this is a good observation. You know, there is a nuclear command and control system. Uh, there's a command and control system right now. And it's, you know, it's a legacy system. It's basically left over from the 19, from 1985, the same architecture. That was a very long time ago, you know, before the internet and so on. Um, but I'll make one observation about it that nobody will dispute. It has not failed catastrophically since then. It didn't fail catastrophically before then either. Okay. Um, but it hasn't failed. And, and that is a big deal. Right. So that means what it means is that we've we've had a number of near misses, close calls. Um, but, you know, we've developed procedures and processes that have made it pretty robust. And that is a pretty good track record. And that you know, have there been problems? Sure. But, I, you know, we have not got up in a puff of smoke. And so that is a good thing. And so that has operational imperatives. Uh, it has certain lessons. The the, the last uh, sorry the the, the the fifth observation is is that um, keeping up. Uh, you, you, pe people have talked about we're entering a rapidly changing uh, security environment, which is true. Okay, you look around, and lots of things are happening very quickly. Okay, and you want to keep up with it. You want your systems, your architectures of command and control, whatever, to keep up with that. That, but the more you change stuff, the, the, as you change stuff, um, you always introduce the possibility of additional security bugs and problems. And there's a tension between rapidly changing your systems and maintaining an adequately an adequate uh, cybersecurity posture, and you cannot resolve that tension. You can't do security if you're rapidly changing your configurations all the time. You just can't do it, okay? You, you can't optimize for both. You have to manage that tension. You have to say, well, sometimes here we're gonna have to give up a little bit on security, and sometimes here we're gonna have to give up on our, on our requirements. Uh, and, if you, and you have to be realistic about that. Uh, and uh, the, the, the last uh, point, is that there are always going to be essentially there are always going to be weak points in the enterprise posture in, in the uh, in the over taken over the entire enterprise. Uh, some elements are going to have weaker cybersecurity than those, and those are going to be the ones that the adversary is is, is going to be more likely to uh, cause troubles in. Uh, and um, the lesson for that is that. Um, Everybody, since you don't know where those weak points are, everybody has to be proceed under the assumption that they've already been penetrated uh, and configure and operate their systems uh, that way. Um, that's a pain in the ass to do, but uh, it's necessary. Anyway, so those are the observations. At this point, so there are some uh, policy imperatives that flow from the observations, as I alluded to earlier. But at this point, I think at the very least for the purpose of giving you some time to catch your breath, um, I want to follow up and draw you out on some of the ideas you just talked about. So one of the fascinating aspects of this book, or indeed this topic in general, is thinking through the marriage of these two things that are suffused with irresolvable, irresolvable trade-offs. You have the always-never dilemma on the nuclear side of the house, 
and then the security, efficiency, usability uh, trade-off on the computing side. Can you talk a little bit about the state of our thinking on those two issues and perhaps how you began to think about them and their interaction differently over the course of writing this book and conducting this research? Well, the, the dilemmas uh, that, that you just described are, uh, are, are, are not new. There's, a, there's another one that I, I, I would uh, point you to as, as well, which is the, 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 the dilemma of um, uh, wanting more functionality as a trade-off against uh, and that having to trade off against uh, security issues. So I'm going to address all three of them, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, on the, the, the always never uh, has been recognized by nuclear, uh, by, by people in nuclear policy um, for a very, very long time. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a tension that goes way, 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 way back. Uh, the always never dilemma is the following. You never, ever, if you have nuclear weapons, you never, ever, 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 ever want them to be used without proper authorization, right? You don't want some, you know, something happening by some person or some by accident or something, some nuclear weapon going off when you didn't properly authorize that to happen. And the authority to use, to order the nuclear detonation uh, is a is reserved for the president. Uh, so you never want a nuclear weapon to go off if not without proper orders from the president. That's the never. On the other hand, the always part is you always want them to be able to be used when the president does order them to. Now this is. You know, this is this is controversial, especially if you imagine the the, the possibility of a president gone mad, um, and there have been concerns about that over the over the years. Um, you know, it, it happened, for example, with a concern, similar concern. The concern over that happened in 1972, um, but uh, there are all kinds of of, of, of scenarios uh, in, in in which you could imagine that the the, the, the chain of command to order new to, to order and actually use nuclear weapons doesn't get you know is broken somewhere and the weapons aren't used when the president said they should be used okay so that's the dilemma and you'll notice that that is you know it's impossible to create a system in which you can always get you know in, in which both of those requirements can are guaranteed to be fulfilled Right, um, and that is an unavoidable tension. Now it turns out that for re- under, entirely understandable reasons, the civilian, sorry, the military side of the house wants always to be able to fulfill its mission if it's been given proper orders. So that means they they try to emphasize the always part. We always want to be able to use nuclear weapons when we've been given when we've been ordered to do so. That's their job. Right, I don't criticize them for that. That's that's that is their job. They that's what they're supposed to be doing. Okay. Civilians, on the other hand, make the observation that they're mostly at peace. Right, mostly we're not in a position uh, where we have to think about using nuclear weapons, and so we want our systems to never function 
without proper authorization. That's the that's mostly the, the and so they want to optimize for that, and that's a tension that you can't uh, that that you can't avoid. The second tension that you're talking about uh, is the the usability versus security uh, dilemma, and, and that is easily illustrated um, by the fact that you and I uh, and everybody else listening to this has has seen at least once in our lives a door that says "Do not prop this door open, emergency use only" or something like that, and it's propped open with a brick, right? You have seen that. I have seen that. We've all seen those things where some security regulation, safety regulation, has been circumvented in favor of greater convenience. And I quote a story in the book about this very phenomenon happening at a security conference. Okay, so this is these are not unusual happenings. Everybody in security understands them. Okay. you know, you know that one of the, the best ways to, to compromise passwords is to go around uh, looking at people's desks and looking at all the post-its that people have about what their passwords are. But why do people write down their passwords? Because the advice that they get, the systems impose this on them. They say, make your, system, make, make your password c- complicated and change it often. Okay, who can, who can remember that? Okay, so they write it down. And now you have another. Now you have another, uh, you know, compromise. You have another potential compromise. Um, so there are all kinds of of, of issues like that, uh, where security and usability are in conflict. And if you think about it, it's supposed to be that way, right? The whole point of security is to make your system totally unusable to the bad guy, right? And, but if security does its job, it lets you in whenever you want. So you have to, dis- the security has to distinguish perfectly between a bad guy and a good guy. And of course, one, it can't do that. And two, even sometimes the, the good guy and the bad guy are the same person, as would be the case if, you had, if, if I had an insider that went rogue, right? If you have authorized access to a computer and I bribe you, now you're working for me. Okay, so you know, do you count as a as a good guy or a bad guy under those circumstances? No way the computer system will know that you are, you know, that you've taken a bribe. So you know, there's there's that tension, and then the third tension, which you hadn't mentioned, but which is really important, to you, uh, is that there's a constant tension between functionality and security. Now, what do I mean by that? We have a track record uh, of you know forty years of computers. Our computers are much, 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 much more useful than they were 40 years ago. That's good, right? Your computer, compared to the ones that you, you know, the ones that you had three generations ago, is faster. It's more convenient. It does more things, and and, and so on. But guess what? It also requires more complex systems. So the operating system that you're running now is bigger than the one that you were running three years, uh, three generations ago. Significantly bigger. Why? Because it has to do more. You have more complicated applications. They have to do more. They provide more functionality. They're easier to use. They're faster, whatever. But every computer person in security will tell you that the enemy of security is complexity. That is, the more complex your system, the more you expect it to do, the less secure it is. 
So we are entering, we are in a situation where our demands, our appetite for more functionality is getting in the way. And that's why we're always behind the eight ball on security. We always want more, and therefore we, we deploy systems that give us more, but they also give us less security. And that's fundamentally why we're behind the eight ball on it. Uh, and that's tension that we don't know how to resolve either. Because if you, if you really unpack what I just said, you'll see that it sounds like I'm against innovation, right? Because who, who doesn't want more functionality? Who doesn't want innovation, right? Everybody wants innovation. Me too. But is it worth the security cost? That's a dilemma that we have never figured out how to address. And that's the problem that I have uh, with, with, with that particular trade-off. We don't know how to have a structured, disciplined conversation that says, well, you'll, yes, you may get certain benefits from this innovation, but you can't have them because it'll, make, it, 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 it'll increase the security risks. We don't have that conversation. We don't know how to have that, and, and, and there's no way that we know of, 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 uh, of no successful way that we know of how to manage that systematically. So that's the third trade-off. At a few different points in the book, you talk about cybersecurity and the nuclear enterprise as being an emergent property of the system, which I think gets to the point you were just you were just making. But can you explain what you mean by that? Um, in you know, perhaps at a at a simpler level, just talk about how the future nuclear enterprise is going to differ from the existing nuclear enterprise. Obviously, the future one is going to be shaped by, you know, architectural policy decisions that have are in the process of being made or are yet to be made. But to the extent we can kind of hold some of that constant and just think about what, uh, you know, computing integration in general is going to mean for the, for the nuclear enterprise and how it might look differently from kind of the current, you know, more hardwired system. Well, I mean, there's always going to be hard wires. Okay, so the, the one of the differences between the old system and the new system is the old system uh, emphasizes point-to-point solutions. Okay, so if you want to part you know, A to communicate with B, uh, what you'd have to do is you design a system that would enable A to communicate with B, and if A already was communicating with C, it didn't matter, and, and so on. And so now the guy at A has to deal with two separate systems. Okay. And so now what you're trying to do is you're trying to integrate all this uh, onto one, you know, onto one system uh, that if you want to communicate from A to B, then you, you just, you know, you, you set up that you have a, a network and you plug in A and you plug in B and now they can talk to each other. And now if you want to talk, if you want to add C to the mix, you just plug in C uh, and, and then A can talk to both of them. B and C at, 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 at the same time. And so this is a, you, you can see how doing it this way might give you a, uh, uh, a greater degree of integration. And in fact, you get, you know, you, you, you could get some, uh, you, you could get simplicity, uh, some, some kind of architectural simplicity of that. On the other hand, it now means that a compromise in B might affect C. Why? Because it can communicate through A, and they're also on the same network, so maybe B and C can directly communicate with each other. Okay, so now you've introduced an, a potential security bug. Okay, and so you have benefited from the fact that you you've simplified the architecture, and it's, people find it easier to use, and so on, and 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 and, and they're liable to make fewer mistakes, and so on, and all those are good things. But you now introduce other communications paths. 
that will enable um, bad things to propagate uh, more than you would have would have been possible had you been uh, uh, in a in a point to point configuration. Now, I'm not trying to make the argument that a point to point configuration is always bad. I'm saying that there are risks that come with the with the, with this kind of uh, integration uh, that you have to take into account, and maybe the risk uh, is too high. So that I, I think that so what I say and when I say emergent, um, I, I, I mean there there's a there's a sense in which I, I mean it technically that is um, if you communicate if you set up um, many risks occur not because of um, uh, flaws security flaws in the components themselves but in the way but because of the way these are arranged to work together and a different arrangement would would entail different risks and these are some these are things that you can't really predict um, because they have to do with how the system is configured and, and, and the decisions that are made um, by the by the operator it's not a technical problem in the sense that you, you can't just give it to the uh, to the technical wizards uh, at you know at the at the vendor at the vendor, you know, at the contractor, um, how the how the operation of the system is structured and so on, which is something that's beyond the vendor, uh, matters a lot for security too. Um, and then there's the fact that technology never operates in a vacuum. That is, it operates a, in an organization with its own, with, which gives people incentives to do various things. It has its own controls on it, and and and, and so on. Uh, so, for example. Um, I mean, you've you've probably had this experience yourself, where you're working on a quote secure network and so on, and you want to take some files home that you can work on. So rather than getting authorization to move your files to your home computer and so on, which takes three days um, and a lot of paperwork, you just copy your files onto a USB drive and take them home, or you email them to yourself, um, and, and you just bypass the entire system. Now, of course, you could set it up so that it makes it very inconvenient to do that, but then you'll find another way to circumvent the system. So that's what I meant by emergent. So let's start moving into the threat picture a little bit more. At least within the United States, there are no public documented instances, at least that I'm aware of, of near miss um, kind of existential scenarios, at least stemming from adversary targeting of NC3 infrastructure. But as you point out in the book, there's kind of a wealth of non-adversarial near-miss moments uh, that history offers that can kind of lubricate the imagination and help us sketch possible vectors of cyber-modulated nuclear risk. Can you talk about some of those examples and tell and, and explain what they tell us about uh, future cyber risk to the nuclear enterprise? Well, so there have Sure. Uh, there, ha- there was at least one incident um, which uh, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry has talked about a lot, uh, in, in, in which he was uh, woken up um, in the middle of the night uh, by, the, by a general at uh, NORAD saying, you know, sir, there are, uh, you know, there are 200 Russian missiles, the Soviet missiles uh, heading towards us. And, and he, you know, and the way he, he says it is, is uh, you know, it was three in the morning, but that woke him up. <laughs> uh, and he said, that, no, no, wait, but the general said, no, no, I know it's a mistake. It's a problem. I've already, I've already determined that it's a mistake. Um, but what I want to know is 
why the hell did this happen? And how am I going to explain it to anybody in the morning? That's why he got the call. And he was the only person that he could reach at the time. This is in, in, in this particular uh, case, um, uh, Perry received a, the, a, a warning that um, uh, it was a training, a, a training exercise was uh, uh, accidentally run on a real computer, which, ex- which sent exercise information to operational displays around the country. Um, and it's just a mistake. Okay, and, and the system had not been designed to prevent that kind of mistake. Uh, and, and that is a, uh, you know, but it, it took them a little while to figure that out. Uh, they figured out it was a mistake pretty quickly. And they never woke up the president. Uh, on the other hand, um, the system... You know, it, it, bad things could have happened uh, at, at, at that point. Um, a year later, and we're right about this. There was a we we found that there was a, so, some radars had indicated a large scale Soviet uh, attack, um, and, and there was a turned out to be a, a malfunctioning chip that was inserting instead of zero in the number of missiles that are attacking the U.S. Um, uh, it, it put in twos. For the, for the zeros. So these are instances in, in which you could imagine that, um, you know, a glitch um, in this would, you know, caused a, uh, a problem. Now, I have to point out that this is, and this is really important. The Russians have no interest at all in causing these kinds of problems, right? It does not do the Russians any good to make the U.S. think it's under Russian attack when it isn't, right? That's, that, that's a clearly stupid thing to do, and nobody on the Russian side would do that, right? That just doesn't make any sense at all, right? Because why would they want to provoke a nuclear attack um, by mistake? And the nuclear attack would go on them, right? They, 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 they would be against them. They, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, on the other hand, you could imagine that some, one of these things might happen by mistake, um, as the side effect of some other Russian operation with, inside U.S. nuclear command and control and warning systems, okay, maybe that could happen, and that's that's an entirely different that, that's an entirely different scenario. They, it, it wouldn't happen um, uh, deliberately, but it would happen as the the accidental byproduct of some Russian penetration, and. The Russians, of course, would have said beforehand, no, no, we're not going to make that mistake. That's not going to happen. But, of course, it might. A big part of the story here is the role of kind of perception and misperception in cyberspace. And to illustrate that, you share this really lovely anecdote in the book uh, about the fallout that Intel faced in the early 90s after it shipped a processor with a known vulnerability. Can you talk a little bit about that story and what it tells us about some of the risks and vulnerabilities we should expect to see in a more computer-dependent uh, NC3? Uh, the Intel FDIV uh, bug was a, a problem in one of their processors. Uh, and uh, what happened was that in a particular operation, uh, FDA floating point divide, um, there was a, uh, 
there was a problem in it that on occasion would give you the wrong answer. Okay, if you executed this operation, it would give you the wrong answer. So, you know, two divided by one would give you one point nine 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 six or something like that. It wouldn't give you two, right? Which is what it's supposed to do. And there was a bug in it. Uh, and first of all, Intel took a long time to acknowledge the bug. Never mind that. There's a lot of proof, and it took them a long time. Okay, fine. They wanted to confirm it themselves, and so on. You can understand that. But then their response to it was, no, no, no. This will appear, you know, this will happen only once in 27 million years or whatever. It's some large number, okay? This happens very rarely. Very, very rarely. And it's not worth fixing for most people. Then, But people said, wait a minute. You mean I have to... You know, e even if this is true, I mean, I, I still want a system that works, that I know works properly. And then they said, no, no, we'll give it to people who can prove that they're going to be affected by it. And eventually it became a whole PR debacle for them. And they finally gave up and replaced every single one of those chips. And they wrote off half a billion dollars for it. Now, I have every reason to believe that their engineering analysis was right that this would only happen very, very rarely. The problem would only happen rarely, okay? But people weren't satisfied with that. They wanted a system that they had confidence in that would work. So it was the, diff it was the difference between, you know, your computer, your calculator mostly works and your, and your calculator always works. And, you know, for all practical purposes, mostly is good enough. But that destroys confidence. And so people said, uh-uh, we're not going to deal with that. And so, you know, ultimately Intel bit the bullet and said, well, okay, fine. And it was a very costly mistake for them because they underestimated the role of, of, of confidence. It would have cost them the same amount of money, um, uh, but they would have gotten a lot better. The, 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 their reputation wouldn't have taken, would not have taken such a big hit. So... When it comes to defense technology and acquisition, there's been a lot of talk about kind of this paradigm shift over the last uh, few decades where technology innovation has moved outside the government and into the private sector. And in, in response, um, there's been a bunch of people both within and outside the government who've been pushing for uh, the DOD, for example, to kind of, uh, you know, learn the lessons of Silicon Valley in their approach to software development, technology acquisition, et cetera. Can you talk about kind of the promise and pitfalls for the DOD uh, when it comes to looking at Silicon Valley as kind of the guiding light for, for those types of things, especially when we're talking about uh, nuclear weapons? Sure. Um, very, very, very much so. So um, if you listen to the rhetoric of the Department of Defense here. They they say we need to have we, we need to build software and so on the way Silicon Valley built software. Okay, why do they want to do that? Well, they observe that Silicon Soft, Silicon Valley has made huge amounts of money uh, deploying software uh, in a certain in, in the Silicon Valley way, um, and they regard that as successful. 
And of course, by Silicon Valley metrics, that is successful, right? Because they have the business. The business of Silicon Valley is to make money, um, and they have made. You know, Amazon has made huge fortunes, and you know, Uber and and, and DoorDash and, and and so on are very popular. Okay. And, and people use their software. They use their products a lot. And they pay a lot of in- attention to usability and functionality and, and, and so on. All things that you want in any new computer systems that you, that you might want to deploy. So this is all very good. But there is a key point about Silicon Valley software, which is that it is, you know when it's been successful. You know when a software deployment has been successful because people like using it and they use it more and they make money on the platform. Okay. If there is functionality that doesn't work or something is hard to use or so on, they get they suffer from it. There's ultimately a metric for determining whether or not the products are successful. There is no similar metric for for example, for nuclear command and control. Who are the users there? In the in the Silicon Valley environment, the users are the customer. It's me. Okay. I want my DoorDash to, delivery to, to, to happen uh, at, 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 at 3 p.m. And it, if it delivers at 3 a.m., I'm going to be really mad. Okay. Um, I'm the ultimate judge of what's appropriate there. But in a nuclear command and control system, or any military system for that matter, there are some decisions that are properly made at the level of the operator, the guy, the 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 the, the person sitting at the you know at the keyboard or the person in the airplane or something like that. Okay, um, and so there are some ways in which Silicon Valley software production techniques are really useful for that person. That person can say, well, you know, I, 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 I can't see the display because it's the colors are bad or something like that. So you change the colors. And the old way of doing Silicon Valley, the, the old way of acquisition software, it would take you a year to fix that problem. And the Silicon Valley in, in environment, it'll take you three weeks to fix the problem. So that's good. Okay. And maybe that display is on a, is on a nuclear bomber. And that's still good. All right. But there are other things which aren't so good in that environment. So, for example, you can imagine a pilot saying, you know, you mean the system is telling me that I need to get authorization to hit that target? Well, yeah, it is telling you that. And it's not clear to me at that point that the user, that the operator, that is the pilot, should have the authority necessarily to drop a nuclear weapon where this pilot sees an interesting target, right? You want that authority to be centralized. You want that authority to come down from the highest ranks of command. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. But you could easily imagine a pilot saying, this is inconvenient. It's going to, you know, the the target's going to disappear if I don't get something there quickly or something like that. You could imagine that. You could certainly imagine a pilot being concerned about that. But in that situation, no, you want the system to enforce a requirement that the pilot gets proper authorization. And 
that's not the kind of environment that the Silicon Valley software uh, is, is, is designed to, to, to optimize. Okay. And put differently, there's one customer in, a, in, in you know, there's one, per, there's one party, one perspective that ultimately matters to DoorDash. Okay. And that's me, the customer. There are many other users of a uh, of a command. There are many different users, kinds of users in the command system. You know, the pilot, the, the you know, the the people who formulate the orders, the person who gives the orders, and so on. All of those things, the, their needs all have to you know taken into account. And in that kind of environment, um, where you have ambiguous metrics of effectiveness and and so on, it's much harder to use Silicon Valley's techniques. I promised I would bring us back uh, to the imperatives that flow from your research. Um, this is a book, I think you talk a little bit about it, is being kind of directed towards policymakers as we're undergoing this uh, nuclear modernization plans. And without taking an unfair shot at them, you know, the caricature of the policymaker is kind of big on ego, short on attention. <laughs> so if you had to, um, you know, give kind of the one, two, or three most important uh, imperatives. Uh, you know, you only had thirty seconds with somebody. Uh, what what would those be? Um, the first one, from my point of view, is is, is that I mean, the the, the high level observation uh, is 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 that um, uh, more complexity uh, means more cyber risk, uh, which means that you want to reduce complexity wherever you can. One very important way of reducing complexity is to reduce the amount of conventional nuclear integration that you're trying to do rather than increasing it. That conventional nuclear integration is a much more, is a very complicated problem um, and it's gonna put a lot more stress on your nuclear command and control than a system that's designed primarily for nuclear. So that's the, so, and, and, and that will reduce the risk of uh, inadvertent uh, escalation. A corollary to that uh, is that um, we are, um, uh, in our efforts to do uh, in, in integration, um, there is a worry that I have that the needs of the conventional side, the conventional forces are going to be given top priority because they're the ones that are most likely to be used. And I think I, I argue the opposite. I think that the, the needs of the nuclear side ought to be given, ought to be given priority because they're the most important. They're the most catastrophic. There's the place where I want things to, where, where I, I want to make sure that things don't go wrong. I can tolerate errors in or problems uh, in the conventional side that I cannot tolerate on the nuclear side, simply because nuclear weapons have the existential, you know, catastrophic potential. Also, I'll give two. I'll, I'll give two others. Uh, the, 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 the next one uh, is that the uh, you want to keep the legacy system around for much longer than you would want to if it were an ordinary system. That is, you know the old system works. 
and that means that that's a good error check. So you can't have you can't but you can't do the error check unless uh, it's still existing. You can't use it for error checking unless it's still existing. So you want to and you, you want to be able to keep the old system around um, to, to provide a a check on the new system as as it gets deployed. Um, that's going to be controversial. People, a lot of people are not going to like that that recommendation because it'll say it'll cost too much and so on. Well, okay, but you know, to me, the security of the the the, the, uh, uh, the you know system security is worth a lot. Um, and I think that uh, and the, the 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 last one uh, on on this is is that. Um, Somebody has to be willing to make trade-offs between reducing cyber risk and increasing performance. And that has to be faced squarely. You can't, performance can't be the, performance and functionality can't be the, given the priority all the time. Somebody has to be willing to say no uh, to that. And that's going to be very hard because, of course, people always want more functionality. So I think those are the, the those are the things that I would emphasize. So let me leave you with one final question. You did kind of this yeoman's work of looking at this problem in a systematic and very detailed and concrete way. Is the net result of that process leave you optimistic that we're going to have the political will to kind of nudge this problem in the right direction over time? Or are you concerned um, that any no- number of obstacles uh, are going to stand in the way and we're kind of going to go in this direction that will uh, create more risk in this system as opposed to uh, less or at least an equivalent degree of risk to the system we have now? All of the all historical experience, both with DOD and others, uh, suggests that... Um, uh, my worst fears are going to be realized. <laughs> uh, that's why I did the that that, that that's why I, I I wanted to get this thing out as soon as I could. Um, I mean, I I, I you know the, I I'm I'm an individual shouting in the wilderness here. Uh, you know, the the caricature of what I said is Lynn is anti-innovation, right? I mean that that's that that would be the bumper slogan. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a grain of truth to it. Okay. It's not exactly correct, but I'm saying, yeah, sometimes you want to sacrifice, you have to sacrifice innovation to, to get better security and it's worth the trade-off. Uh, that's, yeah, yes, that is what I'm saying. And, and that's not, as I say, that's not a popular message. So, you know, uh, but then again, you know, I've tilted at windmills for a long time. <laughs> So on, on this point, I mean, th- this issue is not just limited to the Department of Defense and nuclear, you know, nuclear matters. I mean, it, it, this is endemic to, to society in which we always want more from our computer systems. So, well, uh, anti-innovation and possibly anti-cats may not be the best uh, slogan for your presidential campaign. I'm referencing a, a lovely op-ed that uh, Dr. Lin had in the I believe the LA Times recently, I encourage everybody to read the op-ed, to read the book, which is Cyber Threats and Nuclear Weapons. Um, Dr. Lin, thank you for coming on the podcast and best of luck uh, with the book and future research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.